there's no shortage of talent. So I think the opportunity in the Southeast, especially now with COVID and the ability for people to work remotely and that being much more widely accepted is, is huge. And I think it's only going to grow in the next few years. That's Amit Body, principal at 500 Startups, describing the potential he sees in the Southeast ecosystem. In this episode, Amit offers advice to early stage founders based on his experience working with startups all around the world. He also shares his insight into the ways COVID-19 will change startups and fundraising long-term. My name's Clark Buckner, and this is season four of Disrupt the Continuum, Launch Tennessee's podcast powered by Pinnacle Financial Partners. This show is dedicated to entrepreneurs, investors, and ecosystem builders. This season, we're bringing you behind-the-scene interviews with attendees and guest speakers from last year's 3686 Festival, which for the first time went completely virtual. The new, fully interactive format united a worldwide audience to celebrate community, culture, and connection with the brightest minds across multiple industries. And here's some exciting news. Another 3686 Festival is set for a turn later this summer. Be sure to watch this space for all of the latest info coming soon, including official dates, speakers, and networking opportunities you won't want to miss. Plus, find out when and how you can register to attend. Before we jump into our conversation with Ahmed, we want to thank this season's sponsor, Pinnacle Financial Partners. They pride themselves on being much more than just another bank. They offer their clients long-term partnerships for growing their businesses. Learn more at pnfp.com. Now, let's jump in. Hey everybody, this is Amit with 500 Startups. I'm a principal on our investment team here and I'm happy to be here at 3686 as a speaker this year. Well, thank you so much for taking a little time to jump in here, share with us your story. How did you find yourself doing this work? And, you know, 500 Startups has been such a recognizable presence and a fund. It's now over 2,500 companies that, that you all have made investments in, so all around the world. So how did you find yourself in this particularly? And then let's jump into some of the, the best lessons and, and things that you're here to share with startups. Sure, sure. Yeah, happy to share how I ended up uh, kind of in, in the in the venture industry. Uh, I think everybody has a very roundabout path to it. There's, it doesn't seem like there's any direct or one correct way to end up there. For me, uh, you know, I think it's something I always found interesting uh, just from a pure curiosity standpoint, getting to, to research and, and work with businesses in so many different verticals is just for the, uh, the encyclopedia nerd in me, just, uh, keeps always keeps things interesting because you're, you're always getting a chance to learn and do something new. And it feels like you have a chance to, to make an impact across a ton of different industries. But my path was maybe a little bit non-traditional where uh, I actually started my career uh, as an attorney working with, you know, just at a big law firm and, uh, you know, working on corporate work and uh, corporate governance and M&A, and then uh, eventually made my way to a firm that was really much more focused on venture-backed companies and, and technology. So I realized pretty quickly that that's really what I liked best. And so I, I got the chance to work on tons of venture financings and really learning the ins and outs of that. And then luckily had the opportunity to, to actually work with 500 startups as, as legal counsel at first, uh, when I kind of switched in-house, left the firm to go work with 500 and really got a chance to work 
very tightly with the business side because uh, we do invest at the earliest stages and in companies from around the world. Uh, there, there was a lot of uh, legal work that went into that where, you know, structuring a deal that in a way that it might work in certain jurisdictions. And so more and more, I realized I, I wanted to be more involved in the decision making as well. So, so luckily, uh, over time, I kind of gained the trust of our the rest of our investing team. And uh, so, as of, as of the past two years or so, I've been entirely focused on the investing side and advising companies with, uh, I'll say it as a joke, but free legal advice of uh, the kind of stuff I've picked up over the years without having to build them on, in those tiny little increments and I know a lot of startup founders really hate. So, Definitely. Uh, so for a long time, you were having to bill all of these other folks you were working with when you were not in house at 500. Right. Yeah. And I think that was a huge challenge for me because, you know, I was always really interested in what my clients were doing or if they had, you know, questions. A lot of times people are great technologists and they've never been a founder of a company. So they really do want to just kind of discuss with their lawyer on, you know, how a lot of things work or how they should set something up. And, you know, the way the law firm model works, it's really hard for you to spend a lot of time with a client, especially a small client, without that bill getting out of control really quickly. So I never really liked that feeling that I had to either rush or get to a point where a bill was untenable for a client. So, you know, it's been it's been great now to, to be able to spend as much time as needed with a company to really walk them through and get them comfortable with what they're doing. So you're a couple of years, you're doing this, just more the, the legal perspective at 500. How many deals do you think you structured over just that time period? Oh, I mean, structured, I mean, start to finish, we, we kind of have gotten our stuff down to a science a little bit at the early stage where we, we have a template that we, we stick pretty closely to is the only way we can operate at this sort of volume. But in terms of the number of transactions that I saw across our, our portfolio, in that time, I mean, hundreds, maybe getting close to, you know, a four digit or thousands number, just because as our companies grow, they have more and more financing rounds that we, even if not necessarily participating in, have to review, look over, sign off on. So yeah, just, uh, I'd have to put it in the hundreds at least. At least. <laughs> and this is, I think, a silly question perhaps, but I'm curious what the name 500, like what's the significance yeah, I mean, uh, I think originally, uh, and and I've only been with uh, with 500 for the past three and a half, four years now. But uh, originally, I think it was the idea that you know it's really hard to pick an early stage company that's a winner, and that there was going to be you know up to like 500 companies or 500 investments that uh, you know we'd be making like a, almost like an index across uh, early stage startups, like lots of little bets is the is the, the phrase that that used to get used a lot. Well, we, I mean, we've obviously grown, outgrown that. Uh, didn't want to change the name to 2,500 startups. Right. But, uh, it changes every year. But, uh, but yeah, so the, the name's kind of stuck. And, you know, we you know call it internally. We just kind of call it 500 all the time. It's clean. It's short. So it's just kind of stuck oh. now. But uh, but that's kind of where it started. And, and you know, that, that, that investment thesis has kind of evolved and been refined over time. But yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm still very much a believer that at the early stage, you, you do have to have a pretty diversified view. With 3686, we have a lot of different entrepreneurs and, and all varieties of where they're at, what stage they're at. But is there anything, just generally speaking, you could share on sort of what, what that template's become today and maybe why they've focused in on that? 
Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, our template now is we use, we use kind of our own form. That's a, a variety of a convertible nor uh, a variety of a convertible note. I think it's it's really easy and, and good for uh, an early stage company to be more focused on using things like a convertible no note or a safe from from YC. They do a great job putting out form templates for people to use. And then we, we kind of have our own version of a convertible note that we use. And to be honest, the, the way the terms work is really similar to, to how it might work in a safe, which a lot of uh, early stage founders and investors might be familiar with. We just kind of preferred to use our own paper so we could keep it really standard and know what we were know what we were looking at every time. But for all intents and purposes, it's the same thing as a as a post money safe. And I think for for companies that are just starting out doing a friends and family round, you know, first couple uh, investors or angel investors, that's what makes the most sense. You know, if you can do a priced round with investors that really can come to the table and help you structure everything correctly, that's great. And maybe preferable in some ways when you have a sense of what your valuation is going to be and want to set that kind of foundation, you know, that can make sense. For most companies, when you're in your very early pre-seed stages, a convertible note, a safe, the, the 500 startups version is called a KISS, uh, all, those, uh, a kiss? all those different forms. Yeah, not not my favorite terminology, so I'd prefer to kind of not go down that road. Sure. But, <laughs> hey. um, but uh, but yeah, to me, I mean, I think uh, you know the reason it was called that it was meant to be keep it simple security, but uh, so like kind of the keep it simple stupid uh, changed up a little sure, bit. Sure. But people don't always appreciate jokes in the financial setting. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Okay, so we were starting to talk next about the investment thesis and also the small yeah. bets that you've been making, and and that I think brings us to the southeast. Now you're currently in California, right? Uh, based based in the Bay Area here. And you are not a stranger to the southeast. You went to school at North Carolina. Go Hills. Right. And how long were you there? How long were you in the Southeast just to sort of, but it doesn't take that long to start to feel the, what makes this region special, but tell me a little more about your time here. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I grew up in the DC area, mid Atlantic to begin with, uh, or, or the Southeast kind of depending on how you'd like to, uh, define it. But, uh, you know, first kind of spent a lot of time in North Carolina, uh, when, when, you know, obviously going down there for school, but pretty much since then have. I've kind of looked at it as like a second home, still have a ton of friends out there, have family down there, uh, like to visit as often as I can. And, you know, I think it's just a, a particularly that triangle region where I spent my, probably most of my time or research triangle park uh, and, you know, Chapel Hill, Durham, Raleigh area. I just think there's so much opportunity because there's such a highly educated population, great quality of life, low cost of living, uh, relatively compared to some of the other, you know, cities, like, especially like to compared to the Bay area. And, you know, we just, we just see there being so much potential because, uh, I know from, from my former, you know, classmates at school and everything that there's no shortage of talent. So I think the opportunity in the Southeast, especially now with COVID and the ability for people to work remotely and that being much more widely accepted is, is huge. And I think it's only going to grow in the next few years. Have you seen any other examples of how 
COVID and now remote working is maybe helping people think differently about where they need to be located. Are there any any thoughts that you have around or any predictions of what that might impact the Southeast in the future, especially with the entrepreneurial ecosystem and startup activity? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, you know, it's hard to overstate uh, how big that impact could be. It remains to be seen exactly how it's going to play out and exactly how this the COVID pandemic is going to evolve over time. And I think already every time we try to think that we, we know how things are going to be going, we, we keep finding out that, you know, things change and, you know, our predictions are way off and whatnot. But, um, you know, I, I think there's always going to be value to having some sort of network within the Bay Area or connections to, you know, obviously some of the largest tech companies are based out here. A lot of their leadership is here. Same with uh, some of the largest venture firms. But so I think there's always going to be some value to having network within certain regions, whether it be Silicon Valley or New York or, you know, whatever's relevant to your industry. It's entertainment, L.A. or pick your city. And there's probably an industry that that's very well suited. Uh, Nashville being a perfect example, you know, if you're if you're going to be in entertainment or music uh, like, you know, that's one of your only three options. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I think now that, you know, you're able to connect with people in all these places remotely and it's expected that you can connect with them remote, remotely and you don't necessarily have to go to, to a place or be based in a place for someone to feel comfortable enough to invest in you. I think it really opens up the possibilities for people to grow a company where they're comfortable, where they know they can recruit good talent, where they know they can like retain good talent. You know, there a lot was made over the years of how, you know, there's, so much talent in the Bay Area, but there's also so many different companies that, you know, if your company has a bad couple months, it's going to be looking real attractive for your employees to be looking at the next hot startup down the line. Whereas, you know, if you're based in Atlanta or Nashville or Raleigh or Charlotte, you know, you, you probably have the ability to pay employees a decent wage. They're, they're having the ability to maybe actually buy a house and, and have a decent quality of life and they'll maybe ride with you through the ups and downs of being a startup. It's never going to be smooth sailing the whole time. So I think all of that stuff plays into the advantage that the Southeast could have in the future of just being able to, you know, compete globally because of the remote work angle and uh, while still having like a great lifestyle for, for people on the side. Do you miss the Southeast? Can I ask that? <laughs> I do. Especially I in these times, maybe. I don't know. I think I, I very much miss my, my friends and family from out there. I miss I miss true summer, which we don't always get in the Bay Area. <laughs> uh, but and I think there's, you know, obviously great things about the Bay Area and California generally. And for the time being, I don't see myself wanting to leave here. But uh, it does it does feel like long term uh, when I think about family life and being able to kind of have the same sort of lifestyle or experience I had as a kid growing up. Uh, it's really, it's really something that's attractive in my mind to want to, to want to head back there in, in the long run. No place is perfect, but we do have a lot of good things in the Southeast, right? And the food, the I mean, food, right? I, I, I don't think I've, I don't think I've had good barbecue in the Bay area yet. <laughs> anyway, one of the reasons that you were also speaking this year at the festival, not only, of course, are you looking for great opportunities and great and great startups who are looking for that early support and some of those small bets 
as you say, but you're also, you're sharing, the session is titled Hot or Not, Sales, Marketing, and Fundraising Strategies. So I know it's like a round table of some of the best things, but I want to really zoom in on your perspective and some of the the best advice that you could share in that limited amount of time meeting a founder, whether they're a first-time founder or a serial founder, what is some advice that has just been tried and true and, and you continue to give it today? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that there's never going to be one-size-fits-all advice for early-stage founders. So I, I would I would tell all, all early-stage founders to, like, take everything you hear with a grain of salt. You know, make sure you believe in it before acting on it anyway, because... Investors are fickle uh, at, at the early stages. So much of what you're selling is the vision and having people believe in you. So you know, there's there's not going to be only one way to do that, and a lot of it's going to be you know your connection with that investor or fund. But you know, I, I think one thing I like to say, and I think we joked about earlier, is that you know you don't don't over optimize, <laughs> uh, especially in the early stages. Like. It can't, we were yeah. laughing about it because I, it, it, one of the things, we try to get a little bit of information, that was one of your tips, and I, you do hear the whole buzzword optimize. So, yeah, tell me more about why you say that and why that means what it does to you. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm definitely not trying to say, you know, don't, don't have a good handle on your analytics and your metrics and don't react to those things. Uh, I, I'm trying to say don't have, uh, don't have uh, paralysis by analysis where you're just, overthinking every possible decision, every possible externality, every possible thing that could happen and, and letting that be a roadblock to you actually deploying something out into the market or, or starting to get real live customer feedback. Uh, we see this all the time where companies really build out a product and don't release it until it's totally you know, built out in every possible way that they think and then they've built something that nobody wants or needs. Or, you know, they, they need to make a choice and there's always going to be shades of gray. It's never necessarily going to be black and white that, you know, you need to do X or you need to do Y. And so you lose a lot by over-optimizing at the early stages and not getting the chance to actually just start moving, get it out there, start getting feedback, and then, you know, see what the data is telling you and adjust accordingly. But don't, don't let it hold you back by, by over-optimizing from the get-go. Thanks for sharing that. That's good. And I've, I've heard that. I think that's definitely a theme, but we, it's got to be tempting to try to make something great. Maybe it's from fear or uh, I don't know all the subconscious reasons why that is, but it's a real thing. Yeah. And, and what I'm hearing from you is you still give that advice and you probably have seen that it's not just a, a North American thing. You see that just around the world from all the types of companies you work with. Is that pretty much universal? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think uh, we, we see this from, from companies all over the place. And, and I think uh, one of the things that's great about 500 is you kind of get to view, you know, the similarities and differences around the world. And, and this is definitely an area where uh, there, there are plenty of sim similarities that founders are always going to be really concerned and thoughtful about what they're doing. Because, you know, a lot of cases, this is your baby. This is your life's work. This is what you're, you know, you've, you've been spending a year, two years, three years, sometimes before you're even launching something. So I think it's totally natural for founders to feel that way. And, you know, it's also easy for me to dish out this type of advice. I've certainly, <laughs> I've, I've certainly fallen into the uh, paralysis by analysis uh, camp uh, before. So, you know, it's, it's something I have to remind myself of as well. Recovering is, attorney. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, definitely, uh, definitely doesn't uh, the 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 legal training certainly leads you into present everybody with all the options but make no choices. <laughs> I I think all of this is really helpful and. We're on this theme of giving advice to startups and founders, whether they're first time or serial founders, when they're maybe looking at potentially connecting with someone like you. Are there just things that you just wish everybody knew that maybe it's a little bit of advice from, from maybe not what not to do with reaching out? Is there a right or wrong way? Is Does anything come to mind when I ask that? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I think it's a tough question because I think when this question is asked, most people give the answer of find a way to get a warm intro. <laughs> and it's understandably frustrating advice because, you know, well, if it was that simple, right, then everybody would just do that. So, you know, I think it, unfortunately it is true that that's going to be the easiest way to kind of pulling your name out of the stack in some way. But I think it doesn't even necessarily have to be, you know, a warm intro from some other big name VC. It could just be, you know, reach out to some other companies we've invested in. Reach out to friends of friends. You know, I'm a big believer that within a couple degrees of separation, you can probably reach just about anybody in this world. And so uh, that's something we encourage our own founders to do when they're on their fundraising circuit. So so I think that's one, one good thing. But uh, I, I do think that you know, it's 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 never bad to to reach out cold if you really do have a personalized approach to it. You know, it's very obvious when something has just like been mail merged and sent to you know hundreds of people, and then it's probably less interesting and less people are going to click on it. But there's some amount of what VCs are looking at when they're asking for warm intros is like, can this person hustle and get to where they need to get to and reach the people they need to reach? And you know, that's going to be the same thing you need to do when it comes time to sell your product or to recruit a great candidate to join your team. And, and so I think some amount of that is just showing some amount of hustle and ability to like find a way to reach where you need to go. Because as a founder, you're going to do that over and over and over again. But on top of that, I think it's uh, not to go on too far on this point. This uh, is great. Please uh, continue. No, I think uh, another thing that people can do to just stand out is, is, is just know, know the the firm or the person you're trying to reach out to and and make sure you're you're the right fit for that type of firm. So for example, you know, if somebody's reaching out to us and we invest primarily at that pre-seed or seed stage, but you're raising your series A of 5 million dollars, we're we're probably not a great fit. And so, you know, those those messages don't get responded to as quickly. So, I think you know, whether it's us or someone else, the more knowledge and match that you've clearly already put in, the more thought you've already put into that match, it definitely shows in, in the kind of messaging you send out. Whether it's, you know, mentioning other companies we've invested in that, that you think are a good comparison or, or that you think are exactly why you'd want to work with us or vice versa. Um, you know, all that kind of stuff, I think, goes a long ways to show that a founder is that he or she is prepared and, and has really thought about why they wanted to reach out to us. So uh, everyone, especially in this COVID world, is overwhelmed by messages and emails. And so uh, the last thing I would say about it is to, to not take any of that stuff personally. You know, don't be annoying and, and send people 20 emails. But if something gets missed and you send it up an email, you know, a month later, I think we've all been there now. <laughs> yes, I think that is, is encouraging advice and to stay persistent and it's just different times right now. So 
of course, if you can get the warm intro, awesome. If you maybe don't have that network in place, maybe there's some creative ways to stand out or to, to get through. Like, what do you think here in the States we do really well compared to other entrepreneurial ecosystems? And what are things that we need to do better based on just the insight that you've been able to capture from all of the regions around the world? Does anything come to mind with that? I normally don't get to ask a question like that, but since you are global, I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, try to think. If there's anything in particular that that really, really jumps out as different, I mean, we see so many companies from around the world that uh, eventually want to go from their local market to the U.S. because the U.S. just in so many different industry verticals is the largest market. And, you know, as I'm sure many of the people listening already know, like, you know, large target market is the name of the game in a lot of cases. So uh, I can only get 1% of the market share. I'm sure you right. Right. So, I mean, I think, I think we see a lot of companies trying to make the jump to the U S where I think founders in the U S already have like a natural advantage there because they understand the market a little better. They're already based here. They already, potentially have some clients here. But if I, if I had to take the flip side of it, one thing that we we sometimes see and maybe more of a positive for rest of the world founders is that there's just a, a, a lot of hunger there sometimes with, with founders from underrepresented markets. And, and I would count the Southeast in that or, or even markets that are not California and New York. So, so potentially that's an advantage for founders in the Southeast as well is that you know when people are already when you're already feeling a little bit overlooked or you're feeling like you're going to have to work harder to get something that definitely shows And starting a startup is not easy and most of them are going to fail. And even the ones that are successful are going to have it, they're going to be ups and downs and it's not going to be easy. So I think founders that come into it already with a little bit of a chip on your shoulder is, is, is great. Um, I mean, I think having a little bit of a hustler mentality is, is totally what's needed in the early days. And, and so I'm excited to see, you know, founders that are coming out of the Southeast that probably were overlooked in a lot of cases because there was a great founder coming from Stanford or based, based in the Bay Area. Not that they're not trying to say anything negative about those founders either, but, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of founders across the Southeast that are probably saying, well, I just need my chance and, and I'm going to find all these creative ways to get things done. And, and that can be a huge advantage because, you know, that's what it's going to take to get to success, whether or not somebody invests in you or not. Because once somebody invests in you, that's really when things actually get difficult. A lot of times it's like people want to celebrate because they closed an early investor or raised a round, but it's like, then it's time to actually deliver. So that's when things really get hard. <laughs> All this has been wonderful. Thank you for taking the time to share not only your story, but also the things you've learned along the way and, and continue to go out and, and share. We really appreciate your participation and and showing up. Even though it's virtual, it means <laughs> so much that you're, you're here and you're doing this. And I have confidence. One day we'll get you to come back here to the Southeast. We miss you. But until then, how can someone connect with you and learn more not only about 500 startups, but also just connecting with you? Yeah. Uh, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, you can find me, uh, or more information about 500, uh, it's on our website, just 500.co. And you can see kind of some of the things we're doing around the world. Uh, you know, we, we like to talk about, you know, not only is the portfolio really large, but we've now invested in 75 plus countries. So we're really 
just kind of on this mission to find, uh, you know, the best, best founders, whether they be, um, you know, from any kind of background, if you've got the right, uh, idea, we'd, we'd love to talk to you. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Disrupt the Continuum, a Launch Tennessee podcast where Tennessee's entrepreneurs, investors, and ecosystem builders share their stories. Remember to check back often for updates on this summer's 3686 Festival, including when and how to register. Launch Tennessee is a public-private partnership with this simple vision, make Tennessee the most startup-friendly state in the nation. With a statewide network of partners across industries like healthcare, life science, energy, music, and more, Launch Tennessee provides the resources and connectivity to drive Tennessee's innovation economy. To follow along our journey, visit launchtn.org slash podcast. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned as we'll be back next week to continue the conversation with another episode of Disrupt the Continuum.